Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, a podcast looking beneath the surface of Japan. Last Friday marked the 50th anniversary of the Todai riots, which culminated in an historic two-day showdown between police and activists on January 18th and 19th, 1969 at Tokyo University. In what would later be called the fall of the Yasuda Auditorium, radical students holed up inside Tokyo University's Hongo campus and withstood a 10-hour siege by police in one of the landmark moments of a decade defined by activism and widespread anti-establishment protests. 8,500 riot police and a helicopter dropping tear gas were required to take back the campus from the students, who hurled flaming Molotov cocktails, acid bottles and concrete slabs at the policemen from the roof of the auditorium. Eventually, 370 students were arrested, putting an end to the protests. It was the end of an era. I'm Oscar Boyd, and this week on Deep Dive, we'll be asking, what caused the Todai riots, and what is their legacy now? So 1968 uh, was a a very iconic year for uh, the student protests in Japan. That's Alex Martin, a staff writer for the Japan Times who's been covering the anniversary of the riots. It happened because it coincided with the uh, impending renewal of the uh, U.S.-Japan Mutual Cooperation and Security Treaty, uh, which is in Japanese, uh, in short, is known as AMPO, and uh, whose amendment in 1960 initially triggered the first wave of the decade's social protests. So this was a full decade of protests leading up to these Todo riots in 1969? Um, So there was a a pretty, uh, there's a huge protest going on back in 1960 uh, when uh, the amendment, uh, the First Amendment went uh, into power. But things really started heating up uh, in 1968, towards the end of the decade. What happened in 1968? In January 1968, uh, the nuclear-powered USS Enterprise, uh, this is a huge ship, um, was set to arrive in uh, Sasebo, uh, where there's a U.S. uh, base. Uh, This is in Nagasaki Prefecture, down south. And... uh, Left a student uh, organization called Zengakuren, which is comprised by um, uh, various sects of radicals, leftist radicals. Uh, they sent their students over there. And beginning on January 17th, uh, 1968, there was a huge riot that exploded in Sasebo as uh, student protesters clashed with police uh, armed with batons and uh, tear gas outside the U.S. naval base. And I imagine... Um this was a particularly sensitive issue because of the nuclear legacy of Nagasaki. Um, that was one aspect of it. The uh, other aspect was that the enterprise was heading to Vietnam after this, and this was when the Vietnam War was uh, uh, was an extremely controversial subject um, everywhere in the world, actually. Um, and these uh, leftist uh, student activists and um, other political parties and peace uh, organizations considered uh, having this ship stop by in uh, Nagasaki as a uh, potentially uh, sort of a blind support for U.S. policy in the in East Asia, and they did not like that. Um, and that was, that's what initially triggered the, uh, the riots in Sasebo. So as well as uh, the protests that happened in Sasebo, there were also several movements happening at universities across the country, right? That's correct. Um, perhaps the uh, the most uh, biggest or most famous at the time was uh, the Nihon University scandal, um, also known as Nichidai. Uh, Nihon University is the nation's largest institution of higher learning, and uh, there was a scandal over the embezzlement of 2 billion yen of uh, university money, and uh, this sparked mass demonstrations, um, which also led to the formation of the uh, Nihon University Zenkyoto. Uh, it's a student organization, and uh, they blockaded the campus and pushed for administrative reforms. And this movement, um, it wasn't just only inside uh, Nihon University, but it spread to um, other uh, university campuses and even high schools uh, in Japan. And at, it, at its peak, I think uh, several hundred universities were involved um, 
the students, students uh, protesting um, and asking for reforms inside uh, the university structure. And uh, this was paralyzing universities um, at an unprecedented scale that uh, Japan has never seen so far. And so with this backdrop in mind, what actually sparked in particular the, the riots at Todai, Tokyo Daigaku or Tokyo University? Well, to start off with, the University of Tokyo is uh, Japan's most elite university. Um, and especially back in the 1960s, um, uh, there were only a select few of uh, you know, the top of the top uh, students who were uh, granted access or entry into this university. Um, quite different. I mean, still an elite university now, but uh, you know, it's 50 years ago. Situations were different. So what kind of students are we talking about? Are we talking about the sons of or sons and daughters of politicians and uh, or simply who you know kids who studied their ass off um, and uh, you know considered uh, uh, higher education as um, not something that's given to them from their parents, but something you really fight for and something that that really matters. And I think that sort of uh, uh, passion towards education and uh, what they were expecting to get was a, a huge driving force um, in terms of the uh, the protests that happened during this time. In Todai in particular, Todai is the uh, short, shortened name of uh, the University of Tokyo. In Japanese, it's known as Todai. The protest initially was uh, initiated by uh, medical students, and uh, they were sort of very angry over the uh, working conditions of interns. And this resentment gradually intensified, um, eventually le leading to the occupation of the uh, there's a brick-clad um, clock tower auditorium uh, in the middle of uh, Todai's uh, Hongo campus known as the Yasuda Auditorium. It's still there. It's uh, considered a, a symbol of Todai. And they occupied this uh, auditorium at the, in, in the middle of the uh, campus. And what initially originated as, you know, disputes over money and university reform gradually evolved because, you know, various other things were happening in 1968. There was the Vietnam war ongoing, a lot of resentment towards that. You know, there's uh, also uh, internal university disputes going on. At the same time, there are various students organizations, like, you know, numerous sects um, uh, from, from various <laughs> political and uh, ideological standpoints um, doing protests on a very uh, re regular uh, basis. <laughs> on a basis. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my word there. Who were the leading figures then of the Todai University riots? Right, so the head of uh, um, Todai's uh, branch of Zenkyoto was a man named uh, Yoshitaka Yamamoto, who was a postgraduate uh, student um, at the university at the time. And what were his politics and how did he end up in the position where he was leading this protest? Zenkyoto is a, uh, a student organization. Um, previously I mentioned it's all-inclusive, so it's ideologically free. Um, compared to other uh, student uh, organizations or sects at the time. I think one reason that uh, Yoshitaka Yamamoto was chosen to uh, lead this Zenkyoto uh, uh, branch of Todai was because uh, he did not have any affiliation with uh, perhaps the more radical left-wing uh, student organizations um, that could become problematic in leading this kind of an entity. So accompanying your article are these Absolutely fantastic images. Some of them are kind of classic riot images, uh, barricades. You've got students uh, all uh, coalescing together. You've got pictures of the riot police actually firing tear gas towards the auditorium. Um, but you've also got in there some very peaceful images, students playing Go together, students eating onigiri while they're protesting onigiri, uh, kind of triangular-shaped rice balls. Um, how did you get your hands on these photos and, well, who took them? Right, so when I was assigned to uh, do this story, 
Um, the first thing that concerned me was uh, images, because uh, well, if any of you listening would uh, take a look at the online article or uh, the actual newspaper that went out a few days ago, if we don't have good pictures, it's very hard to sort of illustrate these stories. It's a feature story, it's a long story, and um, we need really strong images. So I was going online and trying to figure out you know, whether there were any uh, historical uh, uh, photographs left from uh, this uh, historical struggle in, in Japan's best university. And I uh, came upon the name Hitomi uh, Watanabe. She's a, uh, a photographer. Um, I think right now she's about 73 years old. Um, she was in her early 20s back then uh, during 1968-1969. And she happened to be very good friends with uh, Yoshitaka Yamamoto's uh, wife, uh, Michio. So she would go out drinking in Shinjuku, which was the center of uh, Japan's counterculture back then, and she would be, you know, taking photographs of, uh, you know, people working or doing something in Shinjuku, the buildings, etc. And, you know, she would have a drink with uh, Michio-san and maybe crash at her place. And during the evening, um, Yoshitaka would come home and have a few cigarettes and sort of uh, quietly <laughs> sit on a couch. And I think the way he uh, is, I think it's his demeanor um, that sort of inspired her because she knew that he, she, he had two different sides, this one very quiet side that he shows when he's back home, but he was also very active in these student movements and, you know, seeing him outside and inside, the transition between this uh, great orator and, you know, this um, activist and this quiet man at home, I think that sort of inspired something inside Watanabe in terms of her, you know, role as a photographer. So she decided to take portraits of this, uh, this man. Well, I think one of the most powerful uh, images that accompany the piece is actually one of uh, Yoshitaka Yamamoto standing arm in arm with the students and he's uh, center of the second row back and his neck is straining, I'm guessing, as he's screaming at the police. There's flags waving all around him. They're all wearing the uh, white helmets and with the batons, how the uniform of the protest is. But am I right in saying that these are actually the only photographs that exist of the Todai riots and uh, this photographer, Hitomi Watanabe, she was, she was the one granted sole access to the interior workings of the student protests. Right. At the time, the uh, the Yasuda Auditorium was barricaded up and occupied by uh, students, not only U of Tokyo students, but uh, other activists and uh, university students as well. Um, and obviously, you know, this is a, a big a newsy thing ongoing, so uh, other major news outlets would... Uh, be surrounding the campus and trying to take pictures of what's going on inside. But it, when it comes to going inside the Yasuda Auditorium, only a select few, you know, members or people who are actually involved with the, uh, the various organizations or sects are granted access. So initially, Yamamoto apparently followed, uh, sorry, um, uh, Watanabe followed uh, Yamamoto around wherever he goes. And, uh, you know, if he went inside the auditorium, she might uh, try to follow him inside. But uh, eventually, uh, she was she began be, to be viewed with suspicion, obviously, because she's this young lady <laughs> with a camera, sort of shooting photographs all the time. So they thought she was a spy, spy, or a, or a newspaper or... reporter trying to sort of sneak in, and uh, she was getting some heat f from that. And then she said, she told me that you know one day uh, she she was she received this armband, and on it it said uh, Zen Kyoto, which basically was a, a ticket inside the Yasuda Auditorium. So since then, she, she, did not, she didn't have any um, uh, big issues going inside and outside the Yasuda Auditorium. So yes, um, in terms of the photographs um, from within the barricades, um, she is considered to be the only person who has, was granted access to take photographs. And how did you get access to these photos? Well, initially I uh, sent her a letter asking whether I can uh, talk to her uh, for, for an interview um, for this story. And she mentioned that, well, would you like to use my photographs? And I was 
Of course, yes. I mean, if you're willing to uh, you know, lend us uh, these pictures, you know, we would love to run it. So when I met her, she brought with her uh, a pile of uh, black and white uh, pictures that uh, she took from back in the days. Um, some of them are compiled in a book that uh, she published. Um, it's called uh, Todai Zen Kyoto, 1968-1969. Um, but a lot of the, she had, you know, oh, tons of other material that was never published at all. Um, and she told me, like, you know, uh, take whatever you want to. I mean, obviously, I'm going to give back the actual <laughs> photographs to her. But uh, she was very open about um, uh, we, us using her photographs. Yeah, yeah and uh, as Alex mentioned, those photographs can all be seen online uh, accompanying his article. Fifty years on from the protests, what's their legacy now? Um, the student protests sort of quieted down uh, in the 1970s. Uh, there were um, several radical elements uh, who were still um, that were still very active, including the Japanese uh, and the Red Army. But uh, I think uh, most of the students uh, sort of settled back down into this state of political apathy. Um, However, uh, that's not to say that there were no activism uh, in Japan. Um, that's actually very wrong. Um, for example, um, environmentalism um, became one, one big major focus um, as national awareness heightened following protests over the Minamata disease, which is a 1950s uh, industrial disaster. Um, also opposing constructions of Shinkansen lines and dams, these uh, things uh, that, that would potentially harm the environment, these were uh, major focal points um, that activists uh, worked towards uh, to prevent. Um, then there were regional uh, feminist movements uh, ongoing, uh, also uh, fighting discrimination against those with disabilities and uh, resident Koreans. Um, and these were some of the issues being tackled. Um, and these movements gradually took the form of uh, non-profit organizations, NPOs. And uh, this was back in uh, around the 1990s, I think, when a lot of NPOs began uh, sprouting up. Uh, but these uh, movements themselves weren't actually... Uh as radical as, say, the earlier student protests? Right. Um, a lot of these movements were led by uh, uh, student activists from the 1960s, um, but uh, it was no longer a student activist movement, but more of a, a very sort of grass, grassroots local movement where uh, people from various uh, generations uh, were involved. And perhaps looking more recently, within the last decade, say, uh, mm. what's the position of student activism now and perhaps activism in Japan in general? So going back just a little bit, uh, in, the, in the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, the, uh, Japan's uh, huge asset price bubble pops, and then the nation enters this uh, so-called last 10 or 20 years of uh, economic malaise. And that's when issues like poverty or like the plight of temporary workers, these are keywords that still uh, gain traction in uh, Japanese society now. And these, uh, you know, these issues began to emerge. Um, in the 2000s, uh, there were major demonstrations against the Iraq War, um, and this decade, in 2010, uh, there were several major social uprising. Um, one, perhaps, is the 2012 anti-nuclear demonstrations, and these were held weekly outside the Prime Minister's residence. Um, and this was in reaction to the restart of two nuclear reactors following the uh, 2011 uh, earthquake, tsunami, and triple meltdown at the uh, Fukushima number one nuclear power plant. So um, nuclear issues was a major sort of uh, um, battling point um, in this decade. And then perhaps most significantly of late, there was the emergence of the group uh, called SEALDS, the Students' Emergency Action for Liberal Democracy. Could you tell us a little bit about them? Sure. SEALDS emerged um, initially, I think, in 2014, and then uh, really fired up in 2015. These were um, young uh, university students, and instead of using, you know, donning helmets and uh, throwing Molotov cocktails, uh, they gathered, you know, they're wearing designer jeans, and they played hip-hop during these protests, and 
Their major uh, beef was uh, they, they were campaigning against the security legislation um, that uh, Prime Minister Abe bullows through the uh, Diet, um, which reinterprets the Article 9 of the Constitution to allow Japan to exercise the right of right to collective self-defense. And uh, they were very sort of uh, youthful and uh, non-confrontational compared to the uh, 60s uh, activists. So uh, they were actually getting along with you know, the police when it came to sort of organizing rallies. There were n n you know, no major sort of clashes that would lead to sort of uh, uh, people being um, arrested over, you know, fighting or injuries, injuries or, or deaths even. None, none of that kind of stuff. So I think uh, the way they sort of organized these events uh, gained a lot of traction, a lot of media exposure and a lot of sympathy. So th they, they became sort of like a credited for mainstreaming activism, at least for a short period. I mean, they were, they were only uh, in, existed for about 15 months, I think, before they dis disbanded. But for a moment, uh, they seemed to have sort of revived that sort of, uh, sort of activist uh, sentiment. At their peak, how many people were they gathering to their rallies? I mean, off the top of my head, I don't know, you know the exact numbers, but uh, I think tens of thousands of people. Um, I used to sort of walk by the, uh, the National Diet um, when SEALs were very active, and you would see huge crowds just sort of occupying the streets and, you know, the area in front of the Prime Minister's building. So it was quite a, quite a sight. So in the 60s, you have these really hardcore protests, um, but now it seems to be that most activism takes on a much more peaceful, less radical form. Is that just a sign of the times? Um, yes, perhaps. Uh, I talked to uh, Kyoko Tominaga, who is an associate professor of sociology at uh, Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto, and she's an expert on social activism. She's uh, 32 years old, and uh, she mentioned that uh, compared to the student activists of the 1960s, let's say, uh, youth today, um, they're much more prone to consider themselves socially vulnerable, and uh, she said they may even lack sort of the competitive urge of uh, previous generations, um, and that might be one reason why uh, uh, they're much more toned down in terms of uh, sort of very radical student uh, uh, activist movements. And she also mentioned that a lot of her students, um, they face pressure against openly uh, conveying political views in classrooms or in seminars, especially if it's anti-establishment. And I talked to one uh, Keio University student, uh, first-year student. He, he would go to these uh, um, rallies and uh, protests occasionally, but uh, he mentioned that he never shows his face. Um, because sometimes there would be like you know media cameras um, you know shooting uh, these protests, and he mentioned that's because uh, um, he, do he doesn't want to be identified because he's scared of how it could impact his chances in finding a job. So do you think, to some extent, there's kind of been or there's a slow death of student activism, or do you think it's ready to pick up at any point? I wouldn't say that it's a slow slow death. I think it's just you know it's just the times. Um, uh, there's you know on ongoing protests in Okinawa uh, that uh, I think is it's drawing a lot of attention, um, and this has been ongoing for for. A very long time, um, and there's you know several other, for example, the Me Too movement um, that's really catching on in Japan, especially in the last uh, maybe year or two. Um, so it, I wouldn't say it's a slow death. I think it's a matter of uh, you know the right timing and the right issue um, that uh, students um, are willing to pick up. Alex's report on the Todai riots and the accompanying photography of Hitomi Watadame can be found online at japantimes.co.jp, where you can also find all the latest in-depth news, lifestyle, culture and sports from Japan and beyond. Deep Dive was hosted this week by me, Oscar Boyd, and our guest was Alex Martin. If you like Deep Dive, please leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you're using. It really does help. Or join us on Twitter and let us know your thoughts on the episode at Japan Deep Dive. 
You may have noticed in this episode the lack of a certain name who has been quite fundamental to the podcast so far, and that um, is the name of my former colleague and podcast co-host, Corey Baird. We started this podcast together and it's always been an absolute joy working with him. Um, but unfortunately he has moved on from the company. But this was recorded before he left. It's a little conversation between the two of us about what his future plans are. Corey, it's currently December 14th, a Friday. Um, I'm off tomorrow for my Christmas vacation, but you're off next week to do something quite special, I believe. Yes. Uh, which has a direct impact on why you're leaving the exactly. company. Exactly. So on December 19th, uh, with a very, very, very heavy heart, uh, I will be leaving the Japan Times. Um, before I get into that, um, I just want to say that uh, my colleagues at the Japan Times have been um, just incredibly uh, nice, uh, incredibly warm, um, very inspirational people that uh, go to work every day to, to make... Uh, to, to report uh, on, on what's happening in Japan and report on very important stories that affect people's everyday lives. And um, yeah, I've just been inspired over the past couple of weeks. Um, I think many people know there's been some, um, some, some unrest, unrest uh, at, at the Japan Times, but um, I just want everybody to know that um, the, the, the employees I've been inspired by over my one-year tenure as a staff reporter, those same people are still making the news. Um, they have an unbiased opinion, and um, I you know, will continue to read and rely on their reporting for, to understand what's going on in Japan, which is, I think, the strength of this institution that's been around for 120 years. But um, I will follow up with your question. Thursday. Thursday, um, I will be heading off to London to uh, meet my girlfriend who actually currently lives in New York. Yes, I know it's very confusing. Um, but uh, we will be uh, spending the holidays there. And um, yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this. Well, I can't believe I'm quitting, first of all. But uh, another point I can't believe is I'll actually be proposing to her. Um, Congratulations. Thank Good luck. You. I hope it goes well. I, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll know probably when this we'll is released. We'll not use this take if, uh, <laughs> exactly. if, if, if this gets released, wrong. then, then we know well. she said yes. Um, but yeah, it, it was just, uh, I was thinking about a move earlier this year and I wanted to spend um, more time in the Japan Times, but um, a lot of different factors led to this decision. And um, yeah, it's going to be um, exciting. Uh, I'm a bit uh, worried. I've been in Japan for the past six years. Six years. Yeah, a massive part of my life. So um, leaving Japan is, is quite sad for me. I, I really don't want to go back to the States. Um, but yeah, I'll be moving to New York and I'll be unemployed. So if anyone is looking out there to... Uh, for an ambitious young podcast host. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to, to do something in podcasting, uh, journalism or whatever. I won't bore you with that but yes um yeah i will be moving to new york in in sometime around february after spending about a month uh you know saying goodbye to people here and perhaps hiking a couple more mountains with you good sir i'm looking forward to it thank you so much for all your work on the podcast yes and it's been thank an absolute you. pleasure making yes. it with you. high five all right, uh, signing off for the last time, Corey Baird from Deep Dive Podcast. I'm looking forward to the episodes in the future. Cheers.